Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, and we'll be continuing today through verses 5 through 11. But before we dive in, I would like to tell you something about this journey wall thing that will be happening next Sunday. A, a key part of what we do as a transition team is to listen to the priesthood. Now, the transition team comes from you, so we're listening to the priesthood through the transition team. But in addition to that, they'll be reaching out to many of the rest of you in the congregation to see what God is saying to you. And we'll begin doing this with what we call the journey wall, which is one of several tools that we'll be using, a sheet of paper four feet tall by 20 feet wide, hung on a wall, which together as a family, we're going to fill with memories. The Journey Wall is like a family album. It's a long banner of recollections that will be interspersed with pictures from the past and from the present. It's kind of a memory wall where we will celebrate uh, our legacy as a church. It highlights highlights of our history, both small as well as big. And it will help us understand what I like to call our our unique enduring passions as a congregation and our emerging aspirations, where God is prompting us to grow and to change. And this and other, um, several other tools will help us clarify where we've come from, who we are, uh, what we are aspiring to be so we can go for it all the more and so that we can identify a pastor who has uh, similar values uh, as ours. There will be chairs in an arc around the wall and we'll be reminiscing all the way back to the beginning, um, sharing memories kind of in popcorn fashion, ones that we'll record on post-it notes, notes that then we'll fill uh, the wall with. And it will become part of the raw data that the transition team will be using in formulating our vision uh, and our values, our unique uh, identity as a church as we chronicle and celebrate together as a family our legacy uh, as a church. So Jim Murphy will be preaching next week um, uh, and uh, he'll do the sermon while I lead the discussion uh, in the the Hall of Faith during both hours. Good part of that legacy, I think we're gonna see next week, is what you've done, whether you know it or not, in applying our passage for today to the uttermost parts of the earth as we're going to see. So back to Romans 2. We've been looking at God's judgments in history. And we'll be talking today about something that's confirmed wherever you look. Something that most people believe, something, something that proves that his judgments are imminently fair. It has to do with reaping what we've sown. With what we call the law of the harvest. You see it reflected all over the place in the secular world to varying degrees of accuracy like here. Reaping what we have sown is not a curse of the law. It is not something God makes happen to us. Now that's a little inaccurate, but the rest is good. It it is primarily the natural and social consequences of our choices. It's how God has wired the universe. I like this one. We reap what we sow. Every choice we make is a seed. Or this one, life is an echo. What you send out comes back. What you sow, you reap. What you give, you get. It's called the law of the harvest. And you see it all through scripture. How it's imminently fair. How God is imminently fair. Proverbs 14, 14. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own weights. Proverbs 14, 32. The wicked is thrust down by his own wrongdoing not just God it's him 
Psalm 9.16, in the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. Going from individuals to nations, Ezekiel 7.4, he's talking to the nation of Israel. I will bring your own ways upon us. I will judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations, the consequences of them. Paul sums it up in Galatians 6.7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man, what? Sows. This he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh reaps corruption. To the sows to the spirit reaps eternal life. All of which goes to show that his judgments are again are uh, imminently fair, which is Paul's point today. And by the way, that's a misspelling up there. You probably caught it. It should not be. It should be E M, not right. I am eminently, not imminently fair. And thank you to our expert proofreader patty leach for for uh, calling that out it's another blessing of growing older yes not being able to spell is a blessing as well as i used to because it humbles you so i've got to keep that up there for the whole sermon so god's goal under under all this is 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 to humble me our passage for today sums up what we've seen in the rest of scripture it's romans 2 starting in verse 5 But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. He's quoting here a passage that we quoted in the Old Testament. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. There are many layers to this, and we're going to unpack more of it next week, but the main deal is this. The main point here is the last verse, where it says that there is no partiality with God. That is, he is not unfair. How so? Well, it's at the top of the passage in verse 6 that we read where Paul begins by saying that God will render to each person according to his deeds. Another version says, make no mistake, in the end, you get what's coming to you. It's the law of the harvest that we see all through Scripture. From this angle, if you think about it, God's judgment should only stand to reason. We don't blame the consequences when we make bad choices, do we? Whose fault is that? Harsh and unforgiving those those consequences may be. No, we blame the one who was foolish enough, who was just asking for it by doing what she or, he or she did. And so it is that when God disciplines us, it's often our own choices that come back to haunt us. They come as the consequence of what we've chosen. Consequences that are uh, as inevitable as a natural law. Like Newton's law, for every action there is an equal and opposite what? Reaction. So do you blame God or do you blame the action? And in the same way, the Scripture teaches that choices are consequential. For every choice there is an inseparably, you know, connected and corresponding consequence that's as inevitable as cause and effect, one that's as sure to kick in as the law of gravity is if you're foolish enough to jump off a cliff. And so we should look before we leap because just as surely as the law of gravity will get our attention, so will the law of the harvest. 
is technically known as lex talionis, the law of retribution. We used to call it a person's just desserts. Remember that? As in, I had it coming. Which is God's goal in letting it happen. That we'd say, I had it coming. Forgive me, God. And the bottom line is this. Don't blame the consequences. Blame the choice. The one who made the choice. Whether you're a person or a nation, be careful of your choices. Because when God judges, he simply speaks the sentence, as uh, Michael Card sings, he speaks the sentence that they have passed upon themselves. So that's the main teaching of this passage. And it was summed up by a public service advertisement that was on TV a few years ago. You may have seen it. A, a young high schooler goes out into the woods and he takes off his backpack and he looks around in a kind of a sneaky way and then he takes out th- three big things out of his backpack, three Frisbees in the shapes of C's, which stands for choices. And he glances around to make sure no one's looking and then he flings them off into the distance and puts his backpack on and, and uh, quickly leaps. Then it says one year later. He's walking down a sidewalk, looks behind him, and he sees all these seas twirling behind him, you know, like boomerangs out of the clear blue sky, and soon there are swarms of them chasing him down the sidewalk, attacking him, kind of like killer bees, until he ducks in the telephone booth, and he crouches down, and they crash against the glass. Then the phone rings, and he picks it up, and a deep voice says, be careful of your choices they may come back to haunt you. (laughs) Or as we saw at the beginning, life is an echo. What you send out comes back. We've been looking at God's judgments in history. We've seen that they're so kindly forbearing because they always come after eons of kindness and forbearance and patience, Roman numeral one, as it says in verse four. And we've seen that they're always also so eloquently focused in God's attention, attempt to get our attention as we saw last week in verse 5. But now we see that he's not just so forbearing and focused, but so eminently fair. So eminently fair. Why? Well, it's because we are judged by our own deeds, point A, as Paul sums up verses 6 to 11. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll see point B, that we are judged by degrees, by the light that we've been given, which is verses 12 to 16. It happens both individually and nationally that he judges us by our deeds and by degrees. And today we'll start with how he judges nations by their deeds. So what nation would Paul have in mind here? as we start digging down to find the application that will ultimately end up with us. Well, we've already seen it. In verses 1 to 4 of this chapter, he's addressing the Pharisees, if you remember, the moralists of his day. In verse 5, he talks about the day of wrath that's coming upon them, that will come, the revelation, the apocalypse, the cataclysm, as we've seen, of the righteous judgment of God. And most commentators agree that it's a warning of what actually went on to happen to the Pharisees with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when God judged the nation, the nation of Israel. But it wasn't just Israel. Last week we saw that God executes judgments by nations. This week we'll see the degree to which he executes judgments on nations. 
and that we as a nation are no excuse and that when it comes it's imminently fair through the revelation, the apocalypse of the righteous judgment of God as Paul says here. Paul generalizes from the nation of Israel here and so we will do that too. And he begins his generalization in chapter 1 verse 18 by, the, by saying that the wrath of God is being revealed. It's continually happening. That's the context. So it wasn't just Israel because God has a great interest not just in individuals but in whole nations. And we see him talk further about this in, in uh, Romans 11. When all Israel is saved, then the people of every tribe and tongue and nation will spring to life. And, uh, and then he'll come back again. You see this all the way from Babel to his judgment on his own people, the nation of Israel, to the judgment that would have come to Assyria had they not repented at Jonah's teaching. He's interested in the nations. And not just individuals, because they're made up of individuals. We see this, um, the, the warnings are all through the prophets about his coming judgments. And he warns them well in advance on Moab, on Eden, on uh, 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 Philistia, on Tyre, on Assyria, on Babylon, on Egypt. On and on it goes. There's no end to it. All the nations are his concern. And he's orchestrating things, not just here in America, but all over the world. And it's all over the place in Scripture. And when it comes, he warns them again and again. When it finally comes, it's always so kindly forbearing and eloquently focused and eminently fair because he doesn't want them to go into hell in a handbasket. All that and much more, and I've skipped a lot, I wish I had time to dig into it, is behind our passage today when Paul says they were storing up wrath for themselves and the day of wrath and the revelation, the apocalypse of the righteous judgment of God which is being revealed so we've seen how it applied to God's people back then how does that apply to God's people today as we in America like to think we are just how is it so eminently fair in our day well if it doesn't apply to what happened with 9-11 I don't know what does as we continue our discussion from last week and we'll round it off today and if you've not listened to that, you really need to because that's the foundation for what uh, we'll, we'll say. Not everything is the cataclysmic wrath of God. Not every cataclysm, but some of them are so clearly so that he wants it spoken in the congregations of his people just ha- as happened through his prophets back then. And how were we just asking for it, shouting for it, screaming to high heaven for it to the point that when it finally came, it was just our own echo? Anne Graham Lotz, one of Billy Graham's daughters, was interviewed soon after 9-11 by Jane Polly on The Early Show. Polly asked, how could God let something like this happen? Here's her answer. For years, we've been telling God to get out of our schools, out of our government, to get out of our lives. I believe that he has backed out. How can we expect him to give us blessing and protection if we demand that he leave us alone? Our deeds decree our destiny, and when they finally come back to us, we have only ourselves to blame because our merciful Father is eminently fair. This has been preached in various places in our country as he wants it to be, even by babes. 
Stacy Presgrove is a high schooler who wrote a paper in her English class on the subject just weeks after 9-11. Here's how she concluded her essay. Out of the mouth of this babe comes something that many adult Christians just couldn't see. She said, many are asking, if God is so loving and kind, how could he do this to us? The question is easily answered. We asked God to leave and he left. Eventually something goes very wrong when we try to do things our own way without God's help. And then we come running back to God for help with the very mess that we got ourselves into. Think consequentially. Could I go so far as to ask, did we bring this horrific act upon ourselves? In America, our Bibles are collecting dust on the shelves. We go to church because it makes us appear good. A number of us even go uh, just to socialize. We have taken God out of schools, government, and family life. Gideon Bibles are no longer accepted in public schools. We have taken prayer out of the classrooms. We have asked that the Ten Commandments be taken out of public buildings and courtrooms. Nativity scenes have been removed from many cities. We have replaced Christmas with the title Winter Holiday or Break. We are aborting God's precious gift of life by the millions. We have demolished the sacred vow of one man with one woman for life. We are redefining what marriage is. So let me repeat myself. If God is so loving and kind, how could he do this to us? This question is easily answered. And I would go as far as to ask another question. Did we bring this horrific act upon ourselves? R.C. Sproul, the theologian who founded Ligonier Ministries, put it this way. He preached an entire sermon on this out of the book of Habakkuk. God has raised up people to do this because when it truly is his apocalyptic judgment, he puts it to words through through his, his pastors and his prophets and his people and babes. He preached an entire sermon on Habakkuk. He had another book of scripture which is about God's discipline on a nation and in particular on the nation of Israel. He applied the book of Habakkuk to America and not only to America but to 9-11. He wrote this, when two evangelical leaders, you may have remember this, when two evangelical leaders, Pat Robertson and the late Jerry Falwell, suggested that 9-11 may have been a divine judgment on, upon our sinful culture, they were hissed, booed, and shouted down to the point that they issued public apologies. Why? The American psyche has no place for a God who judges people or nations. God can bless us, but God forbid he ever judge us. He ever discipline us. And then Sproul said this, we are like Habakkuk who in his consternation over the fact that God used a foreign power to chasten his own people, he asked God a question. We are like Habakkuk who stationed himself on a watchtower demanding an answer from God as to how he could allow such wickedness to prevail in, uh, against his own people. But we are unlike Habakkuk in his repentant reaction when God answered that question where he said his lips quivered and his belly trembled. <laughs> Our lips did not quiver, our legs do not shake, our bellies do not tremble. Rather than repent in dust and ashes before a holy God, we continue to shake our fists in his face, demanding more benevolent providence from his hand. God bless America. No, America bless God. He concludes, my fear is that we haven't learned much from 9-11. What is more tragic is that when we were given a wake-up call on 9-11, we pushed the snooze button and went back to sleep. On that day, more babies were destroyed in the wombs of their mothers than people were killed in the terrorist attack on New York City. And that destruction continues to this day. 
The greatest attacks on the sanctity of life come not from Al-Qaeda, but from those who destroy their young. God will not continue to tolerate any nation that practices that culture of death and barbarism. What is he saying? He's saying just what we've learned, this pattern in Scripture that Paul actually teaches. He's saying 9-11 is lakes. Talionis. It's the law of retribution. You reap what you sow. You're just asking for it, killing 800,000 babies a year. You've created a culture of death and barbarism, and such a culture is just asking for an apocalypse of a judgment in kind. You insist on a holocaust in spite of my warnings? I'll insist on an apocalypse that's like your holocaust, but it's far more merciful than what you're doing. Just a few thousand. The question is not what everyone was asking on 9-11, Christians included. How could God have allowed something that's so evil? No, the question is how could we have ever done something that's immeasurably worse, especially in a nation that of all nations should have known better. America, the city set on a hill, God's chosen people with such Judeo-Christian roots. How did our choices a boomerang Against us on that fateful day, there are many, many examples, and I'm going to have to skip over what I planned to say because there's not time. Our deeds decree our destiny. So don't blame the consequences. Blame the choices. For the nations have sunk into the pit which they themselves have made. Psalm 915. In the net which they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The nations are snared in the work of their own hands. Our deeds decree our destiny. And yet we just blame the terrorists. Christians are doing that too. We hate the terrorists. Even Christians do. The very ones who God tells us to love. And as we bring this section on the apocalyptic judgments of God to a close, the most important thing that you can do to turn the tide in America in light of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God that was so eloquent is one, to repent, as we talked about last week, and as we have done and are doing as a congregation. Praise God. It's pretty unusual, the degree to which God has led you to do it. But this week, well, it's something else that we as a congregation has also, have also done and are doing, and that is to, to bring forth deeds in keeping with our repentance in a very specific way. Because according to the Scripture, one of the most important deeds that we can bring forth that prove our repentance is to love our enemies. Our national enemies, in particular the Muslims. Now I know this doesn't play very well on the conservative right, even on the Christian right. Didn't play well with Jonah when God told him to love the Ninevites by preaching to them. Right? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which was an arch enemy of the northern kingdom of Israel. They were merciless. They were ruthless. They were heartless. They were ancestors of the Arabs in what is now northern Iraq. Literally, they were the Arab terrorists of their day. 
And what did Jonah do? Well, one commentator put it this way. Jonah's reasons for running was that quite simply he did not like the Assyrians. Assyria was an idolatrous, proud, and ruthless nation bent on world conquest and had long been a threat to Israel. Jonah didn't want to see God's mercy extended to his enemies and he knew in his heart that God's intention was to show mercy. And we know the story. Jonah is in the Bible because he's the very picture of what we're not to do. Especially in our situation. And that is, God calls us to love the Muslims. Our enemies like they were Israel's enemies. And it's what God did, told the southern kingdom of Israel to do. It was later on, you know the story, many of you, during the Babylonian captivity, after Nebuchadnezzar had ruthlessly destroyed their temple and their city and deported them all to uh, Babylon in 586 B.C. And then God told him to write a letter to his people there saying, seek, remember it? The what? Welfare of that city. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. On behalf of none other than your nemesis, your arch enemy, the city of Babylon. Jeremiah 29.7. Babylon was 59 miles southwest of present day Baghdad. And so he was telling them essentially to seek the welfare of the Arabs. The ancestors of the Arabs. Why? Loving our enemies is at the heart of true Christianity. It's what he did for us, thank God, and what he wants us to do for others. Let me close with one key application to all of this. We saw last time that even in wrath he remembered mercy on us. That mercy triumphs over judgment in him. And so it is to be with us. Just let the cross sink in for a bit. Even in wrath, he remembers mercy on those like us who make themselves his enemies. And so it is to be supremely with us, with them, with the people who have become the M-word to many on our side, the Muslims. So it is to be with us, with them. Because that's who he is with them. See the cross next to the minaret? You may have feelings toward them. I've had feelings toward them. We all probably have that are pretty ungodly. But is there any mercy? It's a window of opportunity because they've come to our shores. They're all around us here in Loveland and Fort Collins. He died not just for America, but for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so there is a Redeemer whose love we can offer. And I praise God, and it's a privilege to be a part of the congregation that's doing this to this degree.